Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. I'm glad to see you and uh, whoever's watching on the live stream. I'm glad that you're with us too. Uh, one quick announcement and then we'll ju- jump straight into the worship. So in the bulletin it says we are having a new members class tonight. And, and I forgot that it's the, when I was planning that, that it's the weekend. I mean, it's the fourth weekend. And so a ton of people are gone. And so that's not happening tonight. If you were planning on coming and hanging out, uh, don't do it tonight. We won't be here. And uh, no prayer tonight at 5.30 either, and then we'll uh, get those things going next week. I do think that next week uh, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper in new members class. So um, if you're interested in that topic and you're not already in the class, you're more than welcome to show up and hang out and ask questions and chime in and eat donuts with us, and we'll have a good time. So that'll be next Sunday, though. I think everything else is on this week in terms of youth group and men's Bible study. Um, but you can look at the schedule, uh, look at it on the back of the bulletin, or look at it uh, online at the website. Okay, I think that's all I got. Let's go ahead and stand, and we'll sing the opening hymn. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, 
Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sins to God our Father. Holy and merciful God, in your presence we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we are ashamed and sorry for all we have done to displease you. Forgive our sins and help us to live in your light and walk in your ways. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Upon this year confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Savior Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Uh, let's say uh, the first part of Psalm 66 together. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Angels sing and earth reply, glory be to God on high, God who flung the stars in space, God who formed the human race, God the mind and God the cause, God the source of nature's laws. God of wisdom, power, and love, God of gods, all gods above, angels sing and earth reply, glory be to God on high. Angels sing. 
may be seated. The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 66. This is right at the end of uh, Isaiah's prophecy, the book. And it's going to be about the restoration of Jerusalem. And this is much more than the restoration of a, a, you know, a well-loved city, a home country for them. This is written for a people who, uh, whose, whose city, Jerusalem, had been destroyed. And it's a promise that God is someday going to repair it. And it's tied up with this promise that someday God's going to renew the whole, the whole world. And by the way, too, you guys know this. Jerusalem is not just a city. Jerusalem is the place where God has put his name. It's the place where the temple's at. It's the place where God has chosen to dwell. It's the place where God has chosen to forgive sins. So the restoration of Jerusalem isn't just, you know, our, our home cities being rebuilt. It's a promise that I'm going to forgive your sins again, and I'm going to come and live with you again. That's what's going on in Isaiah 66. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall so show his indignation against his enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading is 1 Corinthians 7, first five verses. Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Care and circle all. Lord, we pray. 
blessings may bring glory to your name. In his earthly life our Savior knew the care of faithful friends. May our deeds of dedication offer love that never ends. Lord, we pray that we, your people, who your gifts unnumbered claim, through the sharing of your blessings may bring glory to your name. Heavenly Father, may our caring bear the Son and Holy Spirit, praise be yours in every place. Lord, we pray that we, your people, who your gifts unnumbered claim, through the sharing of your blessings may bring glory to your Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 10. Glory to you, O Lord. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. 
bulletin at uh, the epistle reading, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. I'm going to start uh, uh, talking today and for the next few weeks about 1 Corinthians 7. I just, and, here, and I'll tell you why. Uh, one of the things that, that, that has marked my, w- one of the dominant features of my life ever since I can remember is that I'm not any good at relationships. I struggle with relationships. And you can, uh, I'm sure that my mom will say I was a sweet baby boy. But I, I was not a, a I was you know, I, I remember probably like many of you, I remember sh- struggling with parents uh, when I was younger. Uh, Angela can tell you horror stories about what a bad husband I am. And, and for those of you who know my story, you'll know that that's the case. I'm not a good friend. Uh, I'm not really a good father. And I'm trying to think of other relationships I might have. Let's see, what is it? Uh, child, parent, husband, friend. I'm just not very good at them. And uh, I... I, I I also noticed a pattern that people would come and talk to me because I'm fairly transparent about the fact that I'm not good at those. And, and I try to be so in such a way that it's not like pastor speak, you know, I'm a sinner too like you. You know, one time I got frustrated because the waiter brought my drink late. I mean, I really have been a crummy person. And so people come and tell me about how they've been crummy people too and how they struggle in their relationships. And just reflecting on the conversations I have with you guys when you come and talk to me about your relationship struggles and reflecting on my own life and how I was not and am not a good son and um, have not been historically a very good husband or friend or a good father, I realize that one of the problems that I share with you guys is that the gospel principles behind 1 Corinthians 7, I do not live my life in light of those gospel principles. I don't live my life in, in, in light of those principles. And so what I wanted to do was to give us a dose of preventative medicine. Because frequently by the time I show up at the counselor with Angela and I say to our counselor, I, we have issues going on, it's way too serious. Like it's time for really drastic radical surgery. And, and if we can like think about this stuff beforehand, maybe it will help us if we have some tools in our tool belt to grapple in a gospel-centered, Christ-centered way with our relationships. Now, what's 1 Corinthians 7 about? I'll just give you a, a brief overview. I'm going to give you a brief overview of why Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 7, and then we're going to look, we're going to look at the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 7, and then I'm going to talk about 
what is the gospel center principles behind these five verses, and then give you some quick applications, and then we'll be done. So first of all, 1 Corinthians 7 is about, there's a couple big topics in 1 Corinthians 7. Marriage and singleness are kind of the two big topics that jump out at you when you read 1 Corinthians 7. Now, there's a bit in there about having kids and parenting, but marriage and singleness are really the big two. And I don't know if you're going to be surprised at this, but, but the, gospel center, the, the gospel-centered principles on how you, are, how you be a good Jesus-person spouse are exactly the same as how you be a good Jesus-centered single person. And so what I wanted to do was to talk about that. Honestly, most of you are married or are going to be married. Uh, all of you are single at some point in time. You're single and then you're married. Many of you, I can't, uh, I, I can't fathom even basic math, so I don't want to even try to figure this out. But maybe most of you are going to be, some of you are now, you were married, and now you're single. And so how is it that we can be Christian people living in those relationships? Why is it so important that Paul would write a whole chapter of a book about it is a good question. So we're going to get into that today. Today, I'm going to just, so heads up, if anyone wants to take the kids and run, uh, Paul talks about sex. This, this text is not just about sex. There's a, there's a principle behind what he says about sex, which is very important both to marrieds and singles. So, uh, but, but it does talk about sex. Um, why does it talk about sex? Uh, just quick answer. Paul is dealing with a weird church situation in Corinth. Uh, a lot of crazy things going on in chapters 1 through 6. Paul is r- r- putting out fires, maybe we could say that. Paul's dealing with this sort of celebrity pastor notion of what it means to be a Christian leader and how that's creating divisions in the church at Corinth. People are dividing up into, you know, you know I, I, I watch Apollos' YouTube channel and other people are like, well, you know, Peter preaches, preaches, preaches the best sermons and other people are like, well, Paul was the one who witnessed me when I came to faith, so I'm sticking with him. And Paul's fighting that notion that you, the, the way that you tap into what Christianity is is via a favorite leader or a dynamic leader. He's arguing for what does it mean to be an apostle in ways that hint towards the major theme of 2 Corinthians, which is you can tell who the best Christian leaders are because it's the ones who suffer. It's the ones who are weak. It's the ones who carry about in their bodies the death of Jesus all the time. That's how you tell who the best Christian leaders are. Not the ones who get, you know, get the most hits on YouTube. Not the ones who are dynamic and spellbinding and really kind of, uh, you know, flashy. So, and he's also dealing with uh, other issues. He's got a lot of issues in the church. One is, um, so the divisions is one. One is members of the church suing each other in secular civil court outside the church. Paul is saying, don't do that. You know, if you guys have the Holy Spirit, why would you go to somebody who doesn't have the Holy Spirit to look for direction? He's not saying cover over, like, uh, you, you know, things that people do wrong to each other inside the church. He's saying deal with it by the power of the word inside the church. Uh, sex is a big one, and now we're kind of circling closer and closer to 1 Corinthians 7. Um, Corinth is not a city that, w- that was known for its Victorian uh, uh, mores. It was a, a wildly profligate in its views on sexuality. And so people are coming to faith, and they're becoming Christians, and of course they're bringing all this baggage with them, most of them uh, Gentiles, most of them idol worshipers. Idol worshiping and weird sex went hand in hand in the ancient world. And so they're kind of bringing a lot of these notions in with them, and they're coupling it with what Paul is saying about freedom in Christ. And they're saying, well, I've got the one specifically in 1 Corinthians 5. Apparently somebody is saying, I've got the Holy Spirit. It's okay if I marry my stepmom. We don't, don't know if his dad's passed away or his dad divorced his stepmom. 
But he, this guy is, has moved in with his stepmom, and Paul's saying, you're not going to be like that. Talks about um, prostitution and going to prostitutes. Almost certainly he means sacred prostitutes, go, going to the temple of Aphrodite and, um, and uh, patronizing sacred prostitutes. And then he gets to 1 Corinthians 7, and the letter kind of changes there. Because I said, we're not going to get into this too much here, but it's going to be a series of questions that the people of Corinth, it looks like, have sent him. And four, five, six times, Paul's going to say, now concerning the things that you wrote to me about. And it's like they sent him this letter with comments and questions, and he's going to respond bullet point style to these comments and questions they have. And the first one is about sex. We're going to get to another one in chapter 7, where he gets to another slightly related topic. But this first one is, if you, if you look in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, and the ESV has quotation marks here because most scholars agree that this is a quote that Paul is making from a letter that we don't have anymore, but we have Paul's responses to this letter. And one of the things that at least some people in the church of Corinth have, have said to Paul is, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, this is a certain view of sexuality that's understandable as a pendulum swing from the side where people were like, I can have sex with my stepmom, that's okay, I've got the Holy Spirit, she's got the Holy Spirit, you just do what you want, we're free in Christ. And continuing to live the old life. Uh, and, and Paul is saying, so, 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 okay, so I, I get it, you're saying, you look, at that, you look at that way of life and you say, you know what, that's crazy, we just shouldn't have sex, period. And Paul's gonna start off 1 Corinthians 7 addressing that question. Is sexual relations something that's bad? It's an unfortunate, necessary way to keep the human race going, but it inherently is wrong. And Paul's going to say, no, sex was created by God. You should not, you, well, let's just read it. I'm not going to explain it. Let's just read it to each other. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But he says in verse two, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Okay, now I know you, we see that and we were like, oh, so he's saying that everybody should get married. He's not saying that everybody should get married. What you have to understand is the word have here is, it's a Greek slang term for have sex. So he's saying each husband should have sex with his wife and each wife should have sex with her husband in order to avoid sexual immorality. He's not saying that everybody should get married because he's going to say later on in the chapter, I wish that you didn't get married. Everybody should be single like me. This is the best life out there that there is, he's going to say, and he's going to explain why. But he's basically saying here is if you're married, you need to avoid sex sexual immorality by restricting your sexual activity to your spouse. Now, why does he have to say this? It's because apparently a lot of the men in the church, maybe even some of the women, but we know for certain a lot of the men, the nouns are back in chapter 6, are having sex with temple prostitutes outside of their marriage. And Paul is saying, okay, the answer is not to say, okay, sex with prostitutes is wrong, so stop having sex. That's not the answer. The answer is sex with prostitutes is wrong, so stop having sex with prostitutes and start sleeping with your own wife. That's what he says in verse 2, and he explains further in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. I really dislike that phrase, conjugal rights. It's, uh, it seems, I always hear that in, uh, in connection with prison visits. So, but, but, but actually, in Greek, what it says is, the husband should give to his wife what is owed. But, but it's, it's still, it's talking about sexual relations. The husband should give to his wife what he owes her. Husbands, you owe your wife intimacy. And wives owe your husband intimacy, the wife to her husband in verse 3. Now, verse 4. He's going to explain why. You can see that the word, verse 4 starts off with the word for. He's going to give you the because. 
Here's why I'm saying this. Here's why husbands and wives should give each other what they owe to them. They should give each other intimacy. Because, and let me just tell you this, uh, and I've said this to some of you before, this might be the most offensive thing that I'm ever going to say to an American audience. And I hardly only talk to American audiences, believe it or not. Uh, I was working through this text with a group of uh, high school seniors two years ago, and I read this verse, and one of the seniors almost irresistibly blurted out the phrase, that's toxic, man, when I, when I read verse 4. Because here's why he's saying the husbands and wives should have sex with each other. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now you can see what we're going to, this is kind of the thought that we're going to unpack here in just a minute, but you can see why that's offensive. It's offensive to some of you. Because all of us have American, as Americans have grown up believing that your body is your own sovereign sphere of influence. And nobody else has any sort of like right to tell you what to do. I mean, people can say, you should do this, and you as, as we're talking to Christians now, you as Christians should take that into account. But ultimately, nobody has authority over you except for you. Now, as Christians, you might say, well, and God, right? But here, here Paul is saying, and we'll get back to the God part in a second, here Paul is saying, actually, no, wives, you don't own your body, your husband does. And husbands, you don't own your body, your wife does. You don't belong to yourself. You're actually owned by somebody else. And that's, I, I, I want us to sit in the deep offensiveness of that for just a second. And think about what that means. You are not in charge of yourself. You are, in some senses, a servant. You are called, to, to, to yank language from Ephesians 5, to submit to each other. In the name of Jesus, we're called to submit to each other. And, you know, Paul expands more on what that means in Ephesians 5, and we can look at that some other time. But we're called to be servants to our spouses. And we're going to talk about single people later. They don't get out of it. It's not like you marry people, you, you know, you're owned by another person. We single people, we do what we want. Uh, there's a certain sort of sense in which that's the case, it's, uh, it's a definitely, it's a different sort of service, but it is, uh, and I don't want to talk too much because we'll get to the single people in the upcoming, upcoming verses, but all of us as Christians belong to God, but we also belong to each other. We belong to the Christian church. That's embodied, that's, that's, that's packed in and made super clear and manifested in the marriage relationship. It's a very, very specific, played out vocation where I am supposed to practice 24-7 what it means to not belong to myself, but to belong to another human being. That's what he's saying. Okay, now, it is the case, so remember here, he's, he's talking about sex. Husbands don't have a wife to, not, to, to, to deny physical intimacy to their wives. Wives do not have a right to deny physical intimacy to their husbands. I'm going to talk briefly, just super briefly, about what that might look like in practice near the end of the sermon. Right now what I want to do is move on to verse 5 before we get to the gospel-centered stuff to talk about Paul's, what, sometimes that's not going to be the case, all right? It's not always going to be the case that husbands and wives are regulating intimacy with each other. And what does he mean by that? So verse 5, he says this, do not deprive one another. So the basic number one rule is do not deprive one another. Do not withhold sex from each other. So I've been married long enough, I've done enough marital counseling to know that the withholding and the giving of sex is frequently, frequently, I think I can say this out loud, a tool that married couples use to control each other. And what it is is a way of saying, 
my sex belongs to me. I can give it out when I think I can get something for it. I can give it out as a way to control my spouse. And what Paul is saying is, no, your sex does not belong to you. You have no sexual rights. Instead, you have sexual responsibilities. Your sex belongs completely to your spouse. So do not deprive them. However, if you are going to deprive them, there are some basic ground rules. Verse 5, let's look at this real quick. There's a few things here. Except perhaps, he says, okay, so the first thing, it's not required. It's an option. Paul's not saying that you need to deprive, but periodically deprive each other of intimacy. It's an option. Maybe, perhaps, if this particular scenario comes up, I can see a way where you might not have intimacy, he says, but it's, it's definitely not essential. It's optional. By agreement, except perhaps by agreement, it must be mutual. And again, we're talking about sex right now, but it's going to be much broader when we get to the application. One person in the marriage doesn't get to decide, well, this is what we're going to do, and it's your job to come along. Whether it's, whether it's your intimacy or whether it's anything in the marriage, by mutual agreement, everything happens as a partnership. Everything happens as an act of service to the other. It's by mutual agreement for a limited time. It is not permanent. It is very, very, there's a time stamp on it, and it's a short time because he's, he's going to say in a second, um, because Satan's going to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That, here, here's the, here's, here's the uh, fourth qualifier, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. It must be for devotional purposes. You cannot be like, well, we just need a break. I just need a break from you. Uh, it must be for devotional purposes. It must be for, for specific Time to work on your relationship with God. But, he says, then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Come together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right. So, you don't belong to yourself. Basic principles, you don't belong to yourself. I don't belong to myself. We don't have rights. We have responsibilities. God gives us gifts in order to serve each other. God does not give me money in order to please myself. God gives me money in order to serve my family and to serve you guys. God did not give me my sexual, sexuality in order to please myself. God gave me my sexuality in order to serve and love and please Angela. This sounds like offensive maybe a little bit, except when you understand that, that properly understood that if, if I'm using my money to serve you guys and you're using your money to serve the rest of us, we're going to be a lot better off than if we just like me for myself. The power that God gives me is not meant to aggrandize myself or to build myself up, but to build you guys up. There are no human rights. There are only human responsibilities in the name of Jesus. The payoff to this is pleasure and wholeness and freedom. We'll get to that in just a second, okay? Freedom is the payout. Now, what does this have to do with the gospel? Paul is not just saying, here's the way marriages and relationships should work. And again, hold on with me for those of you who aren't married. Just hold on. We're going to broaden it out. And then 1 Corinthians 7 itself is going to funnel it out broader here in the upcoming readings. What does this have to do? So Paul's not just like, I want you guys to get along better. Let's, let's figure out how to do it. Paul is saying there's something at the heart of the gospel which involves the loss of self and the calling to all of us to serve each other. Spouses, parents, kids, friends, neighbors. There's something at the heart of the gospel that calls us to that. And, and, and I'm kind of a moron because I should have put this in the reading but if you go back, if you're looking actually in, in, in your Bible or on your phone at your Bible, if you go back to the verses immediately preceding 1 Corinthians 7, you'll find the last verses of 1 Corinthians 6, which go like this. Paul says, um, 
Uh, let me find it here. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? God has come and lived in you. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And then he immediately goes into this section on sexual intimacy within marriage. But it doesn't make any sense if you left out, like I did in the bulletin, if you left out the verses from 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says, flee sexual immorality because, two things, God has given you his Holy Spirit to live within you because you are bought with a price, which means you're not your own. Now this is the gospel center principle, is that you have been bought with a price. You've been bought with the blood of your Savior. He purchased you in order to have a relationship with you. Now this, this language of being purchased, so he doesn't use the word here, but it's the, it's the great theme of redemption, being bought back. Uh, redemption, being purchased, is slave market language. It's pawn shop language. If you, you, know, you pawn an old pocket watch to make a little bit of money, and then you come back later when you have money and you redeem the pocket watch, one of the things that you're not doing is you're not buying back that pocket watch in order to free it. You're buying back that pocket watch so that you can once again own it. The rightful owner, it can be returned to him. Look, so this is a lot of times we blend in Christian themes of redemption with American themes of individualism. And we like to imagine that Jesus redeems us from sin in order to free us. And what we kind of think in our heads, although we probably know that this isn't true, but the vibe that that has, has in our country is maybe a little bit like Jesus redeems us in order so that we can now be free agents. And that is not the case. Jesus redeems us so that he can once again own us. Jesus redeems us not so that we can be free to do what we want, but Jesus redeems us so that he can come and live with us. Don't you know that the Holy Spirit is dwelling with you? And he says, because you've been bought with a price. Jesus bought you with a price. The blood, his own blood was shed in order to create a relationship with us so that he could come and live with us. He could put us into a relationship with him. A relationship where we don't necessarily get to do what we want all the times, all the time. But we are connected with him in a new and fresh way. And this is the way relationships always work. It's a lie from our culture that almost all of us believe that freedom means I get to do what I want. That's actually, it doesn't even, it's not the way the Bible thinks about freedom. It's actually in real life, it's not the way that freedom works, period. Nobody actually can do this kind of freedom. It doesn't exist. Nobody can actually do whatever they want. It's just not possible. But, like I said, we all believe this. There's this famous line from a 1992 Supreme Court case, which some of you have heard before, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, where Justice Anthony Kennedy, and um, in the majority of you wrote this famous line. I know some of you have heard this before. But he's describing what it means to be an actualized American citizen. And he says this line, this doesn't sound like something that should be in, in a, a Supreme Court uh, ruling. It sounds, something more, it sounds like something that should be in a Disney movie, which, by the way, is a good indication that if you're hearing the same philosophy from Disney movies and Supreme Court decisions, that it's probably everywhere in our culture. He says this, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. At the heart of liberty is the right to define your own concept of existence. That's exactly what Paul is arguing against here. If you want to be free to have a relationship with God, to know who God is, 
to tap into the mystery at the heart of the universe. The creator God become flesh for us. If you want to have the freedom to be in a loving marriage, you are going to have to give up these cheap, false freedoms that you think you must have to get these greater, more grander, more beautiful, powerful, primal, God-honoring, and God-created freedoms. But we've all fallen for these false freedoms that I get to do whatever I want. And actually, it's not the case. It's just not the case. It's not the way it works out. I don't want to get up and go to work frequently. I don't want to practice my tennis frequently. I don't want to go and hang out with the friends. I don't want to be married anymore. But if I act upon, if I actualize my liberty by doing what I want, I'm going to be poor, I'm going to be lousy at tennis, I'm going to be lonely, and I'm going to sleep by myself tonight. If I actually do what I want, I'm going to destroy myself. I know that, and you know that. You know that if you do what you want, you're going to destroy yourself. Because freedom is always the result of restriction. This is super important. We're not, not, not quite at the heart of the gospel principle yet, but, 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 but it's a ramification of that. Freedom is always, always the result of restrictions. And that's what our culture doesn't get, but it's what God wants you to know is that if you want to be free, you're going to have to be restricted. Do you ever see somebody do something beautiful? Like, it could be something basic, you know, like, like you know, shoot a free throw effortlessly or, uh, you know, make some kind of really kind of grand, intricate, complex, delicious dinner with no recipe. Have you ever seen somebody sit down and play a Chopin etude at the piano and you think to yourself, oh, I wish I was free to do that. I wish I could just sit down and play the piano, you know? I wish I could just, like, go into a kitchen and kind of know what's going on and have, and just be able to, like, do things and, like, be creative. You know, I, I wish I was good at golf. Do you ever think that thought? Do you know the people who have the freedom to play Chopin etudes and, and you know, and make beautiful? They, you know how they got that freedom? By making a bunch of choices where I'm not going to go hang out with my friends tonight. I'm going to stay in and practice the piano. I'm not going to go eat out tonight. Instead, I'm going to work on this meal. I'm going to. I, friends want me to hang, hang out, but my mom's making dinner. And so I'm going to go in the kitchen. I'm going to watch what she's doing and pick up on stuff. I could watch a movie now, but I think I'm going to sit down and work on this foreign language I'm trying to learn. You, you give up. You restrict yourself in all these different cheaper areas of your life in order to, 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 to gain this grander freedom. And that's the way freedom always works. It's never like a Disney movie, Anthony Kennedy whim of like, whatever you want to do, you should be allowed to do it. Okay, that's fine. I mean, I understand that's how, that's how uh, you know, modern enlightenment philosophy works. I understand it's the bedrock upon which our country was built. I say that not as a positive, but as a negative. But it's not the way real freedom works. Do you want a loving relationship? Do you want to intimately know somebody? Do you want psychological and emotional and intellectual intimacy with somebody, a friend, anybody? With a spouse, do you want to add, you know, add physical intimacy to that? That means you're going to have to restrict yourself. You're going to have to say, I don't exist for myself. I exist for the other person. And at the heart of this is the Jesus, and here we are at the Gospel Center, the Jesus who gives up his own rights who gives up his own freedoms, who restricts himself severely in order to rescue us from our sins, who says, 
I am the king of the universe. I am the creator of all things. But I'm going to turn myself into a human and become a construction worker and be executed by the people whose hearts I'm keeping beating even as they nail me to the tree in order to win love for them, in order to rescue us. Jesus gives up all of his freedoms in order to free us and also to grant himself the freedom to be in relationship with us as well. And that, it's, it's n- never that dramatic. My relationship with Angela, my relationship with you, my relationship with my kids is always a sort of weak shadow of that, but it is connected to that. That I am to love you in that way. I'm to love Angela in that way. I'm to love my kids in that way. To give up my own freedoms, to restrict myself severely, to serve you guys in order to have the freedom of an intimate relationship with my church community, and with my kids, and with my friends, and with my spouse. This is the heart of the gospel, and this is why Paul is pulling marriage and singleness and all issues of relationship into the center of the gospel. Because it's not just a matter of, like, let's get along better. It's, are we going to be gospel people? Are we going to reflect our culture where sex is about me, where it's my spouse's job to satisfy me sexually, and if she doesn't, I'm going to have to look somewhere else. Or better yet, I probably should never have gotten married in the first place because that's way too restrictive. Are we going to live that sort of self-centered, destructive life where I show up at an elders meeting and it's about my decisions and what I want to do, where I try to control you guys, where I try to control my kids, where I use my money to please myself and not serve you guys? Do I want to live that sort of life? It's a very, very common life in our world. Am I going to live a gospel-centered life where it's Christ in me, through me, for you guys? That's what he's saying. He's calling us to that life. Now, three quick applications and then we'll be done. Moving from narrower to broader. So this is, for the, this is for you married people. Just to reiterate, God has given you your sexuality in order to serve and love your spouse. So you need to find out what their needs are and you need to meet them. Both of you. It, the temptation might be, the temptation definitely will be, to read a verse like this and say, see, that says, Angela, I, I have authority over your body, Angela. So you do what I want you to do. No, no, that's not the point of the verse. The point of the verse is that Angela has authority over my body. Now, and this is why uh, my uh, young intellectual friend screamed out, this sounds toxic, man. The reason why is because you can see how this is dangerous. If I say, I'm not going to exist for myself anymore. I'm only going to exist for Angela. There's a danger, when she's gonna, there's a danger that she's going to say, okay, cool. That's awesome. Now, you work for me, and I work for me. That's that danger. But Paul is asking us so that you, to, to trust God, to trust the Holy Spirit, to buy into this. And this is very, very simplistic. I, I know I've talked to some of you who are in relationships where this sort of thing has to be severely qualified. I'm talking very basically right now. I know that there are bad, toxic relationships. I'm not encouraging anybody to do anything that's damaging. When I am saying, let's get into the heart of the gospel at wherever we're at and say, how can I love and serve my spouse? Now, sexually, what does that mean? For couples who are extremely busy, different sleep cycles, different biological timers, what's it going to mean? I don't know what it's going to mean for you and your relationship. You're going to have to figure that out on your own, but you're going to have to do it in a loving, communicative way, in a way that says, hey, let's talk about what I need. Not that way, but to say, hey, what do you need? How can I love and serve you? How can I live a life of service to you in such a way that you want me to love and serve you? And you're going to have to do that with your spouse, and it's going to look different for each couple, just like this sort of relationship, uh, this is going to be the second application, is going to look different for every set of friends. But do that communicatively, 
based on service, based on the heart of the gospel, that Jesus gives up his freedom for us. We're called to give up our freedom for our spouses. Second thing, making it even more broader, it applies to every area of marriage. We're not just talking about sexuality here. We're talking about where are we going to go on vacation? Where are we going to live? Are we going to take the bushes out in front of the house and put down rock? Or are we going to put down mulch this year? What are we going to watch on TV tonight? Where are we going to eat? Do you like these pants? All of these should be based on the principle that I do not exist for myself. I exist to love and serve this other person. Now, this is very, very hard because Angela's sitting right there, eyes boring into me. Uh, you know, I can feel my guilt ratcheting up as we speak. Conversations about where we're going to go to eat. Can, something as basic as that, and you know, everybody, who has, everybody who has a human relationship knows what it's like to have an argument with somebody about something that's so stupid, but it, it ceases becoming about the thing that you're arguing about and becoming about who's going to be in charge. So we've all been there. But it, it's very, very difficult to do this in real time. You're going to have to go back to the Holy Spirit, go back to the gospel, go back to the cross and say, Jesus, help me pick. Help me not to do passive-aggressive games. Help me not to say... Uh, Things like, uh, you know, where do you want to eat? Well, I don't know. Well, guess where we're going to eat? And then with the first choice that she makes, be like, no, we're not going to go there. Let's go, you know. To play passive-aggressive games. But to actually love and serve her with my choices, trusting that she's not going to manipulate me, but that she also is reading 1 Corinthians 7 and is going to love and serve me with her choices. This stuff only happens in time. It only happens in relationship. It's difficult but it's extremely possible. There's no, but by the way, you, you guys should leave here and get in your cars and talk about this on your way home, especially if you don't have kids with you. It's not as simple as a conversation. It's a lived out pattern of trust and commitment. When you begin to see that this other person is actually invested in me, wants to love and serve me because this person is committed to Jesus, it has to happen over time. But it's very possible that if we start living gospel-centered marriages, that we could have the type of marriages that glorify him and show Glenn Carbon Jesus. Third principle, and then we'll be done. This applies to all relationships Christians have. If relationships become a way to actualize our own desires, then relationships turn into a commodity. If you live a life where you're friends with people who make you laugh, who you have things in common with, who you like, what you've done is you've gathered around a group of people whose job is to satisfy your desire to laugh, to be with people who agree with you, to be people who turn you on intellectually. And instead in the body of Christ, what we're called to do is to give up ourselves to each other, to love and serve people who aren't like us at all, who might not have anything in common with us, who might not be funny at all, or be intelligent in our books, or be all different sorts of ways. But when we do, when we stop living lives of relationships that are about us and start living lives of relationships that are about God loving us in Jesus Christ through us and for each other, then the gospel, the gospel can be made evident and the body of Christ can be built up. Okay, more on this in the upcoming weeks. This is, this is, so Paul starts off talking about sex, but it's not about primarily about sex. I hope you see that. It's about a life of sacrificial service to our spouses and to our friends and to our community and to our church that he's going to unpack as we go along here. More next week. Okay, let's stand and let's pray, and then we'll have the offering. Father, thank you for loving us. Help us to be people that live out your gospel, uh, um, uh, that come to the foot of the cross regularly, that feed on, the, on your word and on your sacraments, that are fueled up to give up ourselves, to love and serve each other in your name, and help us to be people that manifest this self-sacrificial love of your son, Jesus. 
this transforming, restrictive, and yet ironically freeing love of your son, Jesus. Help us to be the kind of people that manifest that to Glenn Carbon. Help us to do this for your name's sake. Amen. I made a mistake. You can be seated. Please stand for prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being such a good God and for loving us. Thank you for uh, creating the, the vocation of marriage, Father, as a reflection of your, your love for us, your covenant commitment to us, your people. Help us not to lose sight of the fact, Lord, that our marriages and our friendships were designed by you to reflect the love that you have, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for each other. Help us please, please, Father, by the power of your Spirit, help us not to defame the relationships that you've called to us by falsely imagining, sinfully imagining that our relationships exist for our own pleasure or for our own needs. But help us to find our pleasure met. Help us to find our needs fulfilled in loving and serving others like you love and serve each other, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And like you, Jesus, loved and served us by becoming one of us, by becoming human to rescue us from our sins, by restricting yourself to make us free. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you would be with um, our country, that you would bless uh, our, our nation and our culture as we celebrate uh, this weekend uh, Again, the birth of our nation. Help us to be grateful and thankful for this gift that you've given us. And um, in your sovereign will, Father, you uh, put us into this country. You made us Americans. Give us hearts that long for and pray for the redemption and salvation of our country. Help us, though, Father, help us to love our country in a self-sacrificial way. Help us to love our country not by buying into her philosophies hook, line, and sinker, but by being the salt and light you've called us to be here. 
Be with our leaders. Give them hearts that are passionate and love righteousness and justice, that love your commands, that seek your face, and that love your will. Give us leaders, Father, that are willing to sacrifice their own needs to reflect the self-sacrifice of your Son, Jesus. Lord, in your mercy. Father, be with all those this morning who are you know, friends and members of our church, family members who are sick and struggling with uh, illnesses of all sorts. I pray especially that you would be with Mike Cluck this morning and that you'd be with Declan Graney and that you'd be with Donna Hahn and that you would bless and give them strength and courage and boldness knowing that you've called them by name and that you love them and that you hold them in the palm of your hand. Be with everyone else, Father, with all the different things we're struggling with. Many of us are struggling with worry and mental health issues and financial concerns and of course relational brokenness and all of us are struggling with the damage some minor some major that we're doing to ourselves and to our own relationships heal us father we know and we trust that you are determined to make all things new by the power of your son's resurrection so we pray that you would make that real here in time and space in our lives and in our church but if not now Give us patience and grace to wait for the day when you will fulfill this, when you will finally answer this prayer completely, when you'll make all things new in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray these prayers because you've invited us to, and you've invited us to because you've made us your daughters and your sons, and you want this relationship with us. You want us to come in and sit on your lap and ask you for the things that you want us to ask for to trust you that when we do ask for things you don't want us to ask for, that that's okay as well, that you're in charge, that your will is stronger than even our feeble abilities to understand it or even desire it. But that you, Father, as our Father, lovingly and and graciously guide and direct wherever you want us to go. And so as we bring these requests to you, we're throwing them on your shoulders and we're asking you to do what you want to do, to do things according to your will. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord our God, King of all creation, for you've had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And mainly we're bound to praise you for the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, for he is the true Passover Lamb who was sacrificed for us and has taken away the sin of the world who by his death has destroyed death and by his rising to life again has won for us everlasting life. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. Holy, 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 holy. 
Now let's pray in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. and When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Please stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Bless the Lord. Lord, bless you and keep you. The Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. If you want to pray with anybody after the service about anything, you're more than welcome to come forward and there'll be people here who'd like to pray with you. We're going to be looking at an adult Bible study, The Signs of the Times. You should come downstairs where I will unsuccessfully predict the date of Jesus' return. The part about the signs of the times is true. The prediction's not true. Look around, find somebody you haven't talked to in a while, and work on that relationship with them. Go in peace.